0: so tonight we're we're thinking um, as briefly as I can as I can make it um, of the the life and the significance of saint uh, Saint Chrysostom he was one of the most prolific of the church of the Eastern Church fathers and uh, if we had all of his writings today they'd fill ten folio volumes and if you know what a folio book looks like they're very big they're thirteen to fifteen inches high uh, massive tomes uh and um He's a very important guy, and there's a reason why we, we have a feast of, of Saint Chrysostom. I want to say, to say something about the importance of, of celebrating feast days. So in our prayer book, we have, uh, at the beginning, beginning of it, we have a calendar, which has many days throughout the year where we recognize, uh, certain individuals in the church, both men and women, who, um, live particularly, um, Fruitful and godly and, um, and important lives. Um, and really the reason for this is that verse by Paul that I've been repeating um, consistently over the past few weeks, Philippians 3:17, Paul has just given his great uh, description of his life in Christ. He strives, he strains, he forgets what's behind, and he pushes forward to the mark of, of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, he's been laid hold of, and now he seeks to lay hold of the most important thing. And then he says, I want you to follow me in my example. And then he says, fix your eyes on those who walk in the same way. And so by apostolic command, we have, we have a need to fix our eyes on those who walk in the same way. And in some ways, they're few and far between. <laughs> There's many people who name the name of Christ who do not walk according to the same example. In fact, Paul says he's, he's very grieved by them. Um, in that in that same chapter, um, but we have this this need as a church to to fix our eyes uh, on people who who walk like Paul walked, uh, who walked like Jesus walks. Um, William Perkins. William Perkins was perhaps one of the most important uh, theologians in the Church of England, and he was um, really par excellence. He was a Puritan, a Puritan theologian in the sixteenth century, end of the sixteenth century. And this is, what, this is what Perkins writes to us. He says, this is in his, go- his golden chain, his, his summary of theology. He says, we must not pray to the saints. It's not what we're doing tonight. <laughs> we're not praying to the saints. We must not pray to the saints. Nevertheless, Perkins says, such as our saints indeed are to be honored by an approbation of God's gifts in them, by an honorable mention of them, and also by imitation of their manners, manners and their lives, being as patterns for us to walk after. And so this is really what this is all about, and what we're trying to do as a church is to remember that we live in a, a, a big house with lots of God's servants, and the church is 2,000 years old. It didn't start, as some would say, in 1906. It didn't even start in 1517. It started, um, it started with the commissioning the gospel under Christ and his apostles. And um as we follow that apostle's command to emulate the saints, to know the saints, and to let the saints inspire us, um we will live increasingly fruitful lives. And so um the the Church of England has not only chrysostom in its calendar, the Church of England has chrysostom in uh its liturgy. Um there are three places. anybody Can anybody tell me where we can find the, the Prayer of St. Chrysostom? We say it routinely. There are three places in the prayer book that we find it. Does anybody? So it's at the end of the litany. The litany, um, the litany is perhaps one of the most important pieces of the prayer book. The litany is, was Kramer's first great work. This is what he did first, and uh, it's a remarkable achievement. It's a long, long prayer, and uh, in that prayer we pray for everybody. Pray for all kinds of people. Uh, we pray for all kinds of, of disasters and sickness and diseases. We're taught to sympathize with people and most of all we're, we're taught to uh, we're taught to fear the Lord and to repent and to believe the gospel. Um, so at the end of the litany we find we find the prayer of, of Chrysostom. Uh, we find the lit- the litany at the end of morning prayer, And we find the litany at the close of evening prayer. So if you do morning prayer, you say uh, John Chrysostom's prayer. If you say evening prayer, you say his prayer again. And when you say the litany, uh, except when we do it, we haven't been using it, but I should. Uh, We say the prayer of John Chrysostom. The prayer of John Chrysostom, which we will say, you'll see it here in your liturgy tonight, your liturgy tonight, we're going to be talking about, we will pray this together tonight, The prayer of John Chrysostom is based on the promise of Matthew 18, 19 to 20. The idea that when two or three are gathered in his name, our request will be granted by God. It's a remarkable sense of assurance that we have. Um, And so you'll see there when we get to the prayer, who has given us grace at this time and promises that when two or three are gathered together. Uh, And so that's the kind of the... the, um, the, the, the epitome of, of the prayer of Chrysostom. Um, the importance of it being at the end of morning prayer and at the end of evening prayer is that it strikes at the end the high note of the beginning. It strikes at the end of these services the high note of the beginning, which is the idea that the unanimous praying of God's dear children is what the service is all about. We come together to pray together which in the time leading up to the Reformation wasn't the case. That was the time when the priests gathered to say prayers in Latin that no one knew, and it was done as a professional service. And so now when the Reformation comes, everything's turned upside down. And it says prayers about the people of God coming together and the people lending their common voice, one another. We confess commonly. We, we confess our sins commonly, we confess the creed commonly, we say the Psalms, we pray the Psalms commonly, we pray all these prayers as, as one voice, and we pray. Now my experience in church leading up to myself becoming an Anglican was that many things happen in the church service except prayer, <laughs> but prayer. Lots of videos, commercials, um, skits, uh, but prayer seemed to me to be the one thing lacking. And so this is important. The the prayer of St. Chrysostom reminds us that it's about the people of God, the children of God, coming together to pray um, and to receive from God's hand. Chrysostom was a very important fellow not only in the Church of England, but he was a very important fellow in in the Reformation. And I mentioned to you already about Calvin. Um, for those of you interested in this, uh, a fellow by the, the name of Anthony Lane, he wrote a very, very learned tome called Calvin, uh, a student of the Church Fathers, and he explores every nook and alley as to where John Calvin read the Fathers. When I say Fathers, that's the, that's the, um, the kind of the sub-apostolic, just after the Apostles to, you know, the 6th and 7th century uh, common era. The the leaders of the church in those early years. Um, these individuals were very very important to the reformers. They they read them backwards and forwards, and for Calvin, sixty um, percent of his quotes are taken from the the Western Fathers, predominantly Augustine, uh, Gregory um, uh, Augustine and uh, and Jerome, and others, mostly Augustine. Um, but he quotes an awful lot from the Eastern Fathers as well. He quotes from uh, Gregory Nazianzen. He quotes from Athanasius, Basil, Cyril of Jerusalem. But his favorite, without any contest, is John Chrysostom. Calvin loved John Chrysostom. And so should we, as I, as I think. Well, who was John Chrysostom? Who was he? John was a Syrian. John Chrysostom was was a Syrian. He was born in 349 in Antioch. Now, so when we think of John Chrysostom, we should immediately think of the the Syrian refugee crisis. (laughs) He's one of them. (laughs) Another reason to open our doors, uh, and many more reasons. Uh, He's born in 349, born in Antioch. Antioch's uh, just that right now current. It's in the southern uh, little bit of of modern-day Turkey. So uh, as the Mediterranean goes up the Middle East, it's right at the top there. And uh, Antioch was a very important center of Christianity uh, in his day and before. Um, he was a little bit younger than the Cappadocians. So if you know the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, he's a little bit younger than him. He's even younger than Jerome. Jerome was a cranky guy, and he actually goes after uh, Chrysostom uh, later in life, which we can't take up today, but um, younger than these guys and born in Antioch, now, Antioch was the was one of the great jewels of the Roman Empire. Antioch was renowned for its prosperity, it was renowned for its beauty, a uh, very important city, and uh, it was in John's time also predominantly Christian. Antioch was predominantly Christian. Now if you know your, if you've read, you know, I'm, <laughs> you've all read the Bible, um, but you'll know that Antioch had, had apostolic pedigree, both Paul and Peter were stationed in Antioch for some time. And, uh, Antioch was also the very first place where the disciples were called Christians. Acts chapter 11. The very, and the people of Antioch knew this. They knew their pedigree. And they knew that this was the place where they were first called, um, first called Christians. Christianus. Christianus is the word in the Greek from Christianos. It means Christ's people. <laughs> They're Christ's people. Now, it's not likely that the Jews gave them that name. Because they wouldn't be quick to call them the Messiah's people. They wouldn't have said that. It was the Gentiles who says these people are Christ's people. What a name to be known by. <laughs> these, must, these, these are Christ's people. It's a beautiful name. Um, Those who belong to Christ uh, is what Christian, Christian means. Well, he's born here, Christian city. They're all very enthused about being Christians. And uh, John was a man of outstanding qualities. But he was not a man to suffer fools lightly. And that got him in a lot of trouble, uh, as we shall see. Uh, and he was constantly aggravated by the affluence of Antioch, very wealthy city. A lot of wealthy Christians. And uh, in one of his sermons in the book of Acts, <laughs> they, rush on, they rush out of church often and they'd go to the gladi- gladiatorial games. They just loved it. In the middle of the one sermon, he stops preaching on Acts and he says, You can name all the names of the gladiators. But if I ask you, you couldn't tell me the names of the Twelve Apostles, he says. You know, When we think of that, it, it might kind of make us laugh at first until someone asks us to name <laughs> the Twelve Apostles. So at an early age, John, he's educated top-shelf education. He's got some of the best educators, and uh, he's trained in, in rhetoric. That is, he's a public speaker. And if you're trained as a rhetorician in the ancient world, you're set up to be a civil servant. To, 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 uh, to be in a very important place in society. For some reason John renounces everything. He renounces his education, he renounces his comfortable family life, and uh, he decides to become a monk in the Syrian desert. And so in 372 John heads for the hills. And at that time there were many other people in Syria who were getting kind of uncomfortable with the disparity between the gospels and the life that Christ recommended and Paul recommends, and just the affluence and all the toys and all the stuff, and so the hills were peppered with these little communities of monks who just wanted to get away from the city and all that, all the trappings. And so he spends he spends uh, three years or a few years in this kind of um, semi communal life in the hills outside of uh, Antioch, and then. Two years, after what well, four years he's there, and then for two years, he heads off by himself completely, gets into a cave. <laughs> the contemporary historian says three times eight months. That is for, for, for two years. He was uh, by himself in a cave, just getting away from everything, and he was a real severe kind of monk. Like, he did it seriously. No half measures for John uh, Chrysostom. And he suffered terribly. He would He would expose himself to the cold, he would fast for, for obscene amounts of time and he ended up damaging his, his gut terribly. For the rest of his life, John suffered from insomnia, couldn't sleep. He suffered from, from the cold, he couldn't take the cold, and he, had, he, he suffered from a terrible stomach. Now what does that sound like? It sounds exactly like Martin Luther. And so he comes back to Antioch because he has to, He's, his health is completely collapsed. And uh, in 378, he arrives back in Antioch, and um, a couple of years later, he enters into ministry. John is ordained as a deacon, um, and as a deacon at the time, what you did is you worked with the catechumens. Uh, the catechumenate was a process where you were trained in scripture and in theology before you were baptized. And so you had a lot of converts to Christianity, and before they just kind of, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Yep, great, okay, and dunk them. They made sure that they believed in Jesus, and they took him through a, a process called the catechumenate, and deacons were involved in training these baptismal candidates in the gospel. And he was also, as a deacon, they weren't allowed to preach. You, as, if you were a deacon in the 4th century, you, you didn't preach. You preached as a presbyter or a priest, not as a deacon. Um, so he, he catechized people. He also worked with the poor, <laughs> And he worked with the mentally deranged. Um, he worked with the widows. And John worked with the orphans. And it's in this context, in the thick of real human misery, he gets it. He gets it. He understands it all. Uh, that his voice as a preacher is especially formed, especially with a marked and pronounced sense of human sin. <laughs> and Degradation. and um, and suffering. One of his sermons, he says this. He says, the true victim of demonic possession, because he's working now with, with mentally deranged people. He says, the true victim of demonic possession is not the epileptic who bears his lot with Christian dignity. It's the man addicted to sensuality, greed, and envy. He sees it and he tastes it. And it comes out in his preaching. Not that he paints the life of Christianity uh, as an easy one. To be a Christian, he writes, we must walk on burning coals without being scorched. To be a Christian, we must walk on a naked sword without being wounded. (laughs) It's a high call. For John, the, the life of Christianity was of endeavor, it was of sacrifice, it was a life of holiness. And it was a life of straining to be like Jesus. It's a Hard life, um, but one that was worth uh, pursuing. In 386 now, he leaves the diaconate and he becomes a presbyter. He's ordained a presbyter under Bishop Flavian. And once John Chrysostom is ordained a preacher, he just lets loose. He's been working with all this suffering and all this misery. He's been seeing in Antioch all of the, it's the opulence and the disparity of people claiming the name of Christ, but not living it. And it just comes out in a torrential uh, flood. One of his, uh, if, if John was austere as a monk, if he was very austere and severe as a monk, he was also austere and severe in his devotion to the Bible. For those two years in the cave, his contemporary historian tells us that he memorized the Bible, <laughs> he had internalized it, the whole thing. Genesis to Revelation. And so now when he's a preacher, he's a presbyter, he, he has this, this, um, this rhetoric trained as a, as a, as a speaker, trained as a rhetorician, and he's filled with scripture. And these two things fuse together. And John Chrysostom just explodes over the, the Eastern world. Everybody's shocked <laughs> to hear this guy. Most of the sermons that we read, those those 10 volumes, they come from this period in Antioch, and uh, and they're brilliant. And we're going to close this little lesson today with a short excerpt um, from one of his sermons on Philippians 3. Master preacher. He's a master preacher. Well, in, in uh, 397, by 397 now, he's been you know, 11 years as a preacher in Antioch, and his reputation is getting out. His reputation is getting out. Um, and in 397, the Bishop of Constantinople dies. Now, you have important centers in the ancient world for for Episcopal seats. You have the Bishop of Alexandria. You have the Bishop of Jerusalem. You have the Bishop of, of Rome. You have the Bishop of Constantinople. And they're kind of, you know, they're kind of, there's a little bit of kind of political up and down in that world. And everybody wants to have the chief seat. They all do. It's not right, but that's that's the reality. Um... Constantine, you remember what he did? In, in 330, Constantine did something. He, he changed the, the capital of, Ro- of of the Roman Empire from Rome, and he moved it over to a, a city called Byzantium. I keep thinking of that song. Istanbul Constantinople, but, uh, but, you know, he, he changed it, and, and he calls it Nova Roma, the new Rome. Nea Rome, the, the, the new Rome, he calls it. And... Um, uh, since he does that, there's there the other bishops of Rome and especially Alexandria and Antioch. They try to get weak bishops into the seat of Constantinople. They want a weak and ineffectual bishop, so that the new Rome won't kind of overpower the rest of the episcopal seats in the in the ancient world. In fact, at three eighty one, this is the second ecumenical council. It was declared that the new Rome should have precedence over the old. The Bishop of Constantinople is, is the most important guy. And they all have problems with that. All the other bishops are, are uh, you know, um, they're understandably bothered. Well, in 397, when the Bishop of uh, Constantinople dies, the Bishop of Alexandria tries to get his own candidate in there. Weak, ineffectual, a yes-man that will kind of bring the status of Constantinople to uh, down and the court of constantinople is getting whiffs of this and they've got to act quickly they want a man of power they want a powerful man they want a man of clout and a man who has the minerals to kind of to elevate constantinople to what it ought to be and so what do they do they send down a crew of men to kidnap john of antioch and to make him the bishop of Constantinople, he has no idea what's going on. They go down there, they grab him. So there's a special meeting here. We've got to take you to. They go out on the way. They say, "Oh, by the way, we're kidnapping you. You're to be the new bishop of Constantinople." So a very unexpected promotion. John's predecessor was easygoing. John's predecessor, the bishop of uh, 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 Nectarius, was was uh, was lax. He would, he would, he loved to be, he would, I mean, hospitality is great, but that's nearly everything he did. He'd invite people over to have wine at his house, and every, all the preachers loved uh, the bishop, right? It's kind of easy going. Well, here it now comes as ascetic monk who lived for two years in a, cave, <laughs> in a cave, who over 11 years of preaching has become angry at opulence and wealth and this disparity between these two things. And when John comes to Constantinople, his first thing and the only word on his mind is reform got to clean up the house, got to bring things into line with scripture. And he devotes himself, this John of the wilderness now devotes himself to fighting the devil in Constantinople rather than in the desert. He goes after everybody. John just goes after everybody in his sermons and no one's safe from the golden tongue. Chrysostom means golden tongue. So in one sense, eloquent, But in the other sense, golden, as in molten gold. Like he was a fiery preacher, and nobody was uh, safe from that. He goes after the rich. He goes after husbands and their infidelity, and their lust. He goes after wives, and their addiction to high fashion and to kind of petty luxuries. And then John goes after the, (laughs) he goes after the emperor himself. He goes after the emperor of of, uh, of Rome. He just, he he can't stop himself. He's one of those guys who just has to say what he has to say. There's no tact in John Chrysostom. There's no being politic. There's no kind of, you know, not saying something because you want to safeguard your position. He doesn't understand that language. He doesn't understand that at all. And so at the time, the emperor's wife, uh, the emperor Arcadius, his wife Eudoxia, had stolen property from someone. She wants a property. She says, hey, it doesn't matter if I don't own it. It can be ours, hubby. What does that sound like? You really want that vineyard? Just go and take it. Naboth's vineyard, Ahab and Jezebel, right? So John's preaching. And in like a micro thinly veiled reference, he cites this wicked example of Jezebel. And the emperor's absolutely incensed. That John would dare go after his wife. And uh so he decides to exile John. Now, when you are exiled, uh generally you're sent off to some like uh, remote and um a dangerous part of the empire, like off in the Black Sea or off in Armenia, somewhere where the borders of the empire were not so well protected and constant raids were going in. So this is not a kind of a happy experience. Well, he's he's exiled. Um and uh, he's, he's, called, he's called shortly back. He's called, shortly, he's called back shortly after, only to get in trouble again. He comes back, and the crowds decide, or at least the government decides, to erect a statue of Eudoxia, a silver statue in her honor, and there's all these festivities dancing around the statue. <laughs> and, and of all places, they put it right outside the Hagia Sophia, which is the great church, and, and, and John is just incensed again. And he preaches a wild, if the other sermon was a, was a kind of an angry, thinly veiled reference to Jezebel, he's just wild now. The, the leash comes off, the muzzle comes off, and he preaches, and he now calls her not Jezebel, he calls her Herodias. <laughs> She's full of wrath. In the pulpit, John, with no attempt to dissemble whatsoever, he says, again Herodias raves, again she dances, again she demands the head of John, he says. Um, this time he sent away for good, and John dies in pain and discomfort in exile in the year 407. What a man, a man who refused to um, compromise for anything. He was John the Golden Mouth, a man who preached the truth. But more importantly, he was John the Golden Soul, a man who lived the truth. There was no disparity in John the Chrysostom as much as is possible. And John lived to please his master. And so what I want to do, just to close this brief, brief uh, reflection tonight, Is to to give you a sample of his preaching. This is from one of his sermons uh, from Antioch on Philippians 3. Chrysostom says, He then who thinks that all is accomplished and that nothing is wanting to him for the perfection of virtue, he can stop running as though he's apprehended all. But he who thinks that he's still very distant from the goal will never cease running. This, then, we should always consider, even though we have wrought 10,000 good deeds, for if Paul, after 10,000 deaths, after so many dangers, considered this, how much more should we? For I fainted not, Paul says, even though after so much running, I did not yet avail, nor did I despair, but I still run, says Paul. Paul. I still strive. This thing only I consider, that I may in truth advance. Thus, too, we should act. We should forget our successes. We should throw them behind us. As far as one who runs differs from one who lies down, so far does Paul differ from us. See how great a distance it is that we must run over. See how great the ascent is. Look at the runners, how they live by a rule, how they touch nothing that relaxes their strength, how they exercise themselves every day in the palestra, the, the gymnasium, under a master, and they live by a rule. Imitate them, or rather exhibit even greater eagerness, for the prizes aren't equal. Many are those who would hinder you. Live by rule. Many are the things that would relax your strength. Make the feet of your strength agile again, lest the swiftness of your foot be hindered by the weight of other things. Teach your feet to be sure For there are many slippery places, and if you fall straight away, you will lose much ground. Look upward where the prize is. The sight of that prize will increase the determination of your will. And what is the prize? It's no palm branch. But what? It's the kingdom of heaven. Everlasting rest. Glory together with Christ. The inheritance The brotherhood, 10,000 good things, which it's impossible to name. It's impossible to name the beauty of that prize. Gold is mire in comparison with that prize. Precious stones are mere bricks in comparison with its beauty. The crown is not here. It is in that bright place. Even now, we can see its rest. Even now, we can behold that quiet harbor where there will be innumerable good things, the which we may all attain by the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father, together with the Holy Spirit, be glory, dominion, honor, now and ever, and world without end. Amen.